You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. He was a crucial figure in the new narrative movement. Um, Fascination is the book that we are celebrating tonight. It is published by Semiotext. It kind of comes together in three very distinct parts. One of them is called uh, Bedrooms Have Windows. It was published in 1989. And a previously unpublished prose work is part of this. It's called Bachelors Get Lonely. And it concludes with a a work called Triangles in the Sand. Um, It's a, a lovely, lovely book, like all of the books that Kevin produces. And we are greatly thrilled to have him with us once again. Thanks, and I'm so thrilled to be here at City Lights. So yeah, my book is uh, edited by Andrew Durbin, the, the New York poet and novelist and editor, and he had the idea to tell semiotext, why aren't more of Kevin's first books in print? Will you print them? And uh, uh, his book, stomach was bigger than his eyes or vice versa because he wanted to put in like three gigantic books in, in, into this one volume and then the press rebelled no we want a slim looking book so he he said well why don't we have a book of just old memoirs things you know stories of, of your life because I've been telling them as long as I can ever I can remember uh, and he, I, he said, why don't do Bedrooms Have Windows? That was like my very first book. And uh, it was the story of my life before I moved to San Francisco when I lived in Long Island and, and, and New York. For many years, I was writing a sequel to that called Bedrooms Have Windows, because bachelors get lonely. And it tells like what happened like, and why I got married. Um, and then... I had this um, encounter with the people at Badlands Unlimited who wanted me to make a very short book that would be about my uh, little thing with Arthur Russell. And it only had to be 20,000 words. I was like, I could do that. And the, the, the great advantage to that is they wouldn't give you money, but they, Paul Chan would make you like a picture or some artwork. And I was like, yes, that's what I need for my little ministry department. <laughs> well, that broke down, but uh, um, instead, people at Semiotex decided, let's just put that in. It's short. That's what I'll read from tonight. Um <laughs> uh, I met Arthur Russell the same day I met Allen Ginsberg because they were uh, like a partnership. Ginsberg would read poetry and, and Arthur was hired to stand, sit behind him like 20 paces and play the cello if there was some particularly rhythmic thing, you know, and he'd be like... Oh. And they came to Stony Brook, this, this college where I was going to grad school. And I was determined at that point to have a affair with Alan Ginsberg because he was like super famous. 
in here it was like I realized he was the most famous gay person except for at that time but except for Paul Lind and Bayard Rustin so what are you going to do <laughs> uh, and we were in this group called the GSA the Gay Students Alliance We all of us went aflutter like yellow moths surprised by a hummingbird when anyone famous visited us on campus. Like the ambitious stenographers in The Best of Everything, 20th Century Fox, 1959, we were all waiting for our main chance, trading on our youth and beauty to land Mr. Wright. For me, Allen Ginsberg was going to be my ticket out of my paper mache nightmare of whiteness and blankness and hollow, meaningless, suburban living. I'm from a town called Smithtown, which is like, you know, to go there is to die. <laughs> I had gone through a long period of enslavement to David Bowie and was only now waking from my dream and realizing I would never meet him in real life. But now the older, shorter, schlubbier Ginsburg was in fact almost within the realms of possibility. I got this idea from a fellow gay student, William, a boy I'd gone to high school with. Two or three years my junior, Will was humiliatingly enough hip, so much hipper about gay life. I'd gone trawling for a lot of sex, and that part was cool. But I didn't know how to date, and Will was infinitely at ease with romance and relationships. He had an easy, flirtatious way about him, and he mentioned casually that he had slept with Allen Ginsberg several times. It was sort of gross, Will said. But on the bright side, he had never had so much first-class attention paid his ass. And since he, Will, had been put in charge of the entertainment committee of the Gay Students Alliance, he could bring in whoever he wanted to, to as speakers. In this way, in fact, I got to meet the poets Eileen Miles, Michael Lowey, and Tim Dulugos, for they came to entertain us, gay and lesbian students. Ginsburg was perhaps not the household word he had been 10 years before, but he was still the most famous poet in America. And during the 70s, he was particularly active and prolific as he sought new ways to deliver his message to the people, including a then shocking shedding of his hippie clothes and aura to adapt three-piece suits, shorter hair, and a series of professional gigs that would culminate in a professorship at Brooklyn College. And the awards began to roll in while he was growing closer to his guru, the wild man of the East, Trungpa Rinpoche, who played on Ginsburg's well-concealed attraction to obedience and blind devotion. This was mid-May 1978. So we're there at the campus of the college and a, like a town car rolls up and everybody's like, who gets to open the door? <laughs> Will was there at, to open the door and embrace Ginsburg, but the poet seemed to me to be avoiding his kiss for some reason. This was my big moment. I had humbly pleaded with Will to be allowed to be there at the greeting ceremony. Another GSA member stood nearby with some paperwork. <laughs> but I clutched the flowers I had begged Will for the chance to present. The bouquet was what today you would call artisanal. <laughs> 
There were two or three red roses threaded in it, but it was otherwise comprised of the native plants of Long Island. <laughs> you who know Ginsburg's work will know that he would always look for the native plants of wherever he went and wrote, wrote a poem about them. <laughs> Milkweed, goldenrod, violets, false indigo, verbena, messy plants, kind of RFD thrift store. A few feathers from the robin and the gull, the native birds of Long Island, gave it even more Suffolk County humility. Standing there to present my thoughtful, poetic gift, I must have looked like Laureen Niedeker, <laughs> like the girl from the North Country Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash sang about. <laughs> can, can somebody help my musician, Ginsburg called out, in a brush tone, the tone you would use were your wishes being ignored instead of catered to slavishly, which was verifiably the case. <laughs> Naturally, we GSA guys tripped over ourselves trying to untangle Arthur Russell's limbs from his cello and the Imperial and get everyone out, get everyone, get everyone out of the car and onto the outdoor stage safely. I still had the flowers in my hands, so I couldn't really assist. <laughs> but I caught his eye, the musician, he was awfully young, exactly my age, I think, maybe a few months older. My mind dismissed him on the one hand, but on the other, something registered in another part of itself, an impression of a withheld energy that seemed very urban and refined, not a giving nature. And also, he'd be good looking if, except for that complexion, but I didn't say that. <laughs> Um, so yeah Ginsburg gives his whole reading Arthur's playing behind him overhead spring leaves splayed from maple branches fluttering in the breeze like green and yellow pennants and behind the leaves the late afternoon sky glowed pale gold and blue like the inside of a Fabergé egg his reading brought down the house or whatever the outdoor equivalent is for the house his musician listened intently, tall and willowy, in a yellow and black flannel plaid shirt, untucked. From time to time, he was called upon to apply his cello to Ginsburg's intonations in call and re response format. If you could see his face, he seemed determined to hide that scowl under a mane of thick curtains of brown hair. Though while playing, his expression changed into something less conscious of the suburban kids all around him. Restless, longing, I realized I still had my ignored bouquet in my hands. And this discovery embarrassed me so much I wanted to stow the thing into one of the green institutional trash cylinders featured everywhere on the campus. But a little bit of mad Ophelia infected me. And in time with the sing-song poetry, I plucked a flower at a time and sailed them wildly over my head as if practicing for a new heaven and a new earth. <laughs> Afterwards, I imagined the boys and girls of the Gay Student Alliance would ask themselves, what was Kevin muttering when he threw those hideous flowers up into the air? <laughs> and one would report, one who stayed closer to me as I tore at my clothes and drooled and sang. <laughs> First he said there was fennel for you and columbines. There was rue for you, Will, and there was some he would hold on to. 
On Sunday, he said, it was an herb of grace. But it was only Tuesday. I know, but that's what made him so scary and so uncanny. Kevin Killian told me I should wear the rue with a difference. Like a gay difference? I don't know, just a difference. I saw him toss some grody violets right at Allen Ginsberg's face. Yes, and he cried out, I would toss you some violets, Arthur Russell, but they withered. All of them died as my love for Ginsberg crumpled and died. So what happened was... <laughs> I'm going to have to skip this over, but uh, instead of staying, going back home to New York with this town car, Alan just decided to stay in our neighborhood and visit these old poetry friends of his, Louis and Celia Zukowski. So Arthur wasn't welcome. He was like, I have to get him back to New York, and he delegated me to drive him back to New York. Um, it you know it takes a long time to get from Stony Brook to Manhattan, even back then in the seventies. Anyhow, what was the alternative? Alan alone with that horrid harmonium perched on his knee, never in tune. <laughs> so when I dropped Arthur outside his building on the Lower East Side, I swallowed my pride to mumble, "What's your number?" And he slid the padded case from the back seat, rotated it to sit on the curb near a hydrant leaned down and spoke to me through the passenger window. I was just about to say, he began, I don't know, we could hang out. <laughs> Nodding, I gave him the thumbs up side and put, uh, sign and put on my blinker. Dark was coming on and I had a class to teach in the morning. He had one more thing to say. As I left East, East 12th Street, he called after me, you're a good driver. That was the first and last compliment from him. <laughs> and maybe the only time ever anyone's ever said that to me. <laughs> in New York, Arthur and I hadn't much in common, as I was soon to discover. He knew so much about music. He made me feel dowdy and square, like all my experience listening to Hunky Dory and Diamond Dogs. <laughs> Counted for nothing, not to mention the Rosemary Clooney and Bing Crosby duets my mom and dad had filled our house with growing up. He had known Terry Riley and Robert Wilson and Yvonne Rayner and all these people I, I had never actually even heard of, whereas I was from Hicksville. Literally, that's the town I was born in. That, this was all right because I was still better looking than he was. <laughs> or so I thought so or so I thought then and maybe that delusion saved me from an utter ignominy but delusion is what it was I can only remember knowing one thing about music that he didn't already know but we did share some enthusiasms we both liked abba and they they were still like you know a group then <laughs> yeah and their weird jolly english knowing me knowing you Dancing Queen, Waterloo, Fernando. We would repeat those lyrics as though they were keys to a deeper understanding of some far-off thing. Not just Scandinavian studio mastery, but instructions from another world. An Austin Osmond spare world. 
the judges will decide the likes of me abide. <laughs> if you could figure out the turns of phrase, you might be on to a different mentality, as might one who would know the sex of angels. You know that song that judges will abide, likes of me? Okay. In silly moods, we would play like we were Frida and Agnetha, pro-offering hands drawn up as though they were clawed and paw the air, singing in unison, I am behind you, I'll always find you. Then it'd be like, paw, claw, I am the tiger. This one isn't one of their most famous hits, but (laughs) if you were alive in 1978, you loved it. I don't know why any of Abba's songs are still popular all these years later, because they were so juvenile. And yet, I suppose, like this tiger number, they not only partook of human suffering, but there was maybe something eerie, unheimlich, about them. He and I were just two guys, neither of us gay, or so he said. We just liked to hang out together, and to parody the way couples felt gay or straight, the extravagances of emotion one had come to the Lower East Side to avoid or to sample, like going to a Jack Smith performance, experiencing feeling only through the excess of performance or emotion as parody. Is there something of the sort going on in Arthur's lyrics? As I listen to them now, I think I hear it. They too, some of them sound written right on the very edge of English. So I was thinking of ABBA in that regard. Arthur liked the wall of sound, or perhaps the super producer in general. There's not only Phil Spector and Bo Michael Trito, he of ABBA fame, but Jack Nietzsche, Joe Meek, Eddie Holland and Lamont Dozier, Mickey Mouse, Shadow Morton, the guys who didn't know when to stop. He was very hip to the unhip. People like Juan Garcia Esquivel or the super unhip Charlie Colello. He who, who had produced the famous Lou Christie falsetto singles, Lightning Strikes and Rhapsody in the Rain. But also the Four Seasons, the Toys, a Lover's Concerto, Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, Laura Nero's or Eli and the 13th Confession LP. We both had the original record that had some that had come packaged with mauve lyric sheets drenched in patchouli oil. Colello again. <laughs> Extravagant even kitschy at a time when kitsch reigned except among the cool. But Arthur's tastes were unpredictable. For much of the time he had that subtly Buddhist tendency towards stripping down, unplugging, <coughs> making things simpler. But I don't know much about music, and I wonder if carrying these two opposing tendencies with you in a life of music is perhaps common, commoner than in poetry, maybe. Though he knew American poetry quite well, a a few different strains of it, as those who know his lyrics will conclude. I remember him as one of the very few admirers of the poet John Wiener's who enjoyed equally both the spare, bleak epiphanies of Wiener's early Hotel Wentley poems and the manic, Ludwig's eccentric, 
word tangles collected in behind the state capitol or Cincinnati Pike. He, Arthur, would turn to me, tragedy brimming over in his lambent eyes, and ask me, where are those happy days? They seem so hard to find. I would reply with a steely, defensive crouch. I tried to reach for you, but you had closed your mind. By then, he would, we would both be giggling like schoolgirls. Whatever happened to your love? With that strange beat on the proposition, too. Whatever happened to our love? It used to be so nice, he said. I replied, it used to be so good. I was one to whom he could unveil these maybe queenie desires, to be one with Agnetha and Frida, <laughs> to paw in the air in a way that Alan, or I don't know, David Byrne or Cecil Taylor would, would not. <laughs> but outside of that, we weren't real attracted to each other, and we were both pretty broke all the time. Arthur would moan that he had to break this or that studio date in which he had planned to record something of his own because he had to eat. And one time I remember I gave him, I gave him $40 to save such a date, and that seemed like an inordinate amount of money to spend on a guy one wasn't even fucking. <laughs> he acted straight, spoke of having girlfriends, and he danced with the few women who showed up on the floor in the Paradise Garage. Seemed to prefer them, in fact. It was a shame then that I was growing fond of him. He played me a record he had made, a single sung by a woman called Kiss Me Again, and it was fairly tantalizing. I asked him, when you wrote it, who were you speaking to? Who did you want to kiss you? Was it Alan? He broke into a grin. No way, man. Maybe Ronnie Spector. <laughs> Matt Wolf's documentary, Wild Combination. Some of you have seen this movie, The Life of Arthur and Russell emphasizes that Russell's background, the past he'd grown, he'd known before I met him. He'd grown up in Iowa in an inhospitable country, flat and hot, and music was an escape, mentally, emotionally. In high school, he had listened with all his intensity to the radio hits and low-ranking LPs of the art rock ensemble, The Left Bank. Once in New York, he'd spent some time trying to track down the guy who had written the group's best songs back in the mid-1960s. I can't remember if Arthur actually met him or not, but Michael Brown was one of his idols. The cello floating up and around such tracks as, these are songs by the left bank, Desiree, Walk Away Renee, Ivy, Ivy, and Pretty Ballerina, always call Arthur Russell to my mind, for I have a mental image of him listening to these songs as a teen, in a plowed pasture, like the children of the corn, or cold comfort farm, all lamentation. Maybe I'm just projecting, but my sense is that he really wanted out of there. When I heard he had passed on, I wrote a poem for him, named after his song, Is It All Over My Face? In it, random snippets of left bank lyrics came rushing onto the paper in splash after splash. Was I surprised? Yeah. Was I surprised? No, not at all. That's from Pretty Ballerina. 
from Desiree, he, I remember this line, everything returns again, both the laughter and the rain, but also this image of looking beyond the sky, finding or at any rate fishing for something beyond the visible. When you're a 25-year-old drunk like me with nothing much on your mind but getting laid and trying to be hip, it's just concerning to run up against a guy who has something going for him. He was quiet sometimes, thinking or feeling deeper than I could, or, or than I then wanted to. He got lost in himself easily, just slipped away when you were talking to him. I didn't know how much I ran my mouth until I met him. We'd have long conversations in which I figured later, in blushes, I talked in great jags of jokey but earnest bullshit while he nodded or once in a while interjected a yeah or no kidding. <laughs> One afternoon we talked about leaving behind everything in New York and taking a holiday to, in Hawaii. And it grew so intense for me that I was sure he had agreed to our plans. We were to leave on a week from Sunday and then it turned out later that he had never registered that I was making a plan and that we were talking about going to Hawaii for that Dennis Wilson feeling of love, love, love. It's supposed to be tomorrow, I stuttered. I'm all packed up like with my sunscreen and shit. I don't know what you're talking about, he said flatly. I know that now. But I don't know why. You said you wanted to see Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa, he snorted. What would you know about Mauna Loa? I met you at the Gay Student Union at Stony Brook. <sighs> oh, and that's right. You're not even gay, Arthur. All I'm saying is that I would never agree to go to Hawaii with... He just stopped himself from saying, from, from saying with you. Instead, he said, with anybody, because I hate tourists and I hate Hawaii. <laughs> and there was, always, there was always his face to convince you. In most lights, he had the raw look of Artaud in those, in those stills from the Passion of Joan of Arc. Half of it was his hair and the other his bad skin. He looked like he'd been scraped by clamshells. That's how messed up his profile looked. That was the shallow thing that held me back, that gave me the delusion that, of the two of us, I was the fairer maiden. Oh, then we... I wanted to go to Studio 54. This is, I guess, more of me being shallow, you know, because that was, like, the famous place. Everybody was in papers all the time. But he always liked to go to this place, the Paradise Garage. And when on the west side of town, which was like the gayest block, you know, I was like, what was he doing there? Um, it was the late 70s. If he wasn't gay, how did he even hear about this block? It was the late 70s when the art of cruising had finally been perfected. Ditto the whole courtly love apparatus of swooning on the street when a cute trick passed by or walked relentless in front of one for blocks on Essex Street, his ass a puzzle screaming to be solved, or a moving game like the Tetris of the future. 
<laughs> like blocks of buttocks to be no negotiated and conquered. I would say I would eat him up like an ice cream sundae, and Arthur would pause, say nothing, perhaps tilt his head towards me quizzically, almost as if I had said something unpleasant, or so foreign it was like I was speaking to Bjorn or Benny. What was the matter with him? Next to him, I thought I was too gay. A concept that otherwise did not exist in 1978. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, we went to... Um, there's like a long list of the different songs that he liked at Paradise Garage. I remember the Bee Gees had a song called More Than a Woman. And this intrigued Arthur with the ambiguity of its reference. What would, what would being more than a woman entail? Was it in fact a gay coming out number? The Bee Gees acknowledging their gay fans? And giving us a little something? More than a woman, than a woman to me. I think now that I was just dumb and socially challenged, expecting everyone to act like they had gone to Catholic high school, like I did, <laughs> boys' school, as I had, and that everyone was from Long Island's North Shore, since East Egg in The Great Gatsby, the byword for vacuity, I thought I had all social types pegged, but I didn't know anything about people beyond my purlieu. And to be fair to myself, he wasn't all that easy to reach either. It wasn't that he was alienated from other people, not per se. He assumed he seemed to be enormously popular. At a coffee shop, we'd be eating, and our table would get filled one by one with guys he'd worked with or danced with. And I remember having to introduce myself once because he was too high to remember my name. You ever have that happen to you? Yeah. He looked at me and his mouth moved. But if you gave him a hundred dollars, he couldn't summon my name. One of the fellows sitting two seats away from me was Lance Loud, my gay idol previous to Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> Lance Loud of the Mumps, whom I'd adored in the PBS show An American Family when I was 20 or so, and frozen, transfixed to public TV. Lance Loud, who'd had the balls to leave sunny Santa Barbara, his mom and dad, and pound the bell at the desk at the Chelsea Hotel, checking himself in. Those mean desk clerks at the Chelsea. And while we sat, sat there companionably together, I saw another guy's hand slip into the back pocket of Arthur Russell's jeans, and I wondered, who is this guy? Of the two of us, I was the more alienated in actuality. Awash with envy and aggression, while he, Arthur, was merely alienated from his body, and in an interesting way, <laughs> that's how I see it now, having lived in California for 35 years, where these aperçus thrive like the avocados. <laughs> again and again, I keep running into the basic problem that I was based on Long Island, and that consequently, I was a dud. Maybe he was screwed up in his libido, but he was an adventurer, living a creative life while I was cooped up in my rented house in Rocky Point studying Tennyson, Browning, George Eliot, and bringing guys home, but I wasn't an artist. Every time I emerged from the Midtown Tunnel into Manhattan, I would find that Arthur Russell had played some fantastic gig the night before. Though he didn't seem to be famous exactly, he wasn't a good fit for me. 
he deserved somebody better, and I deserved somebody who could peer under my anomie and maybe found out I was sort of cool. He was handsome, but oh, that complexion. <laughs> Will said I had the shallow personality of the club kid without the appeal. <laughs> the drive, but no charm. <laughs> we get to Once Arthur and I went to the movies and argued about what we should see. Perhaps because he wasn't in it for some reason, Alan had advised us against seeing The Last Waltz. Not worth your time, he told Arthur. One morning we folded the daily news against the mailbox propped open to the movie listings. We wound up deciding on the original Grease. <laughs> Grease, yeah. Then a new movie. I can't remember if it was Low State 1 or 2, whatever the upstairs one was near Times Square, and moviegoers online said the management had slotted what must have seemed like it was going to be a turkey, Greece, the original Greece, into like the smallest little theater they had there. Um, so it became a real challenge to get a ticket. We tried it to see it at noon and couldn't get tickets till 9 or 10 at night. In the meantime, we sort of had nothing to do. We kicked around here and there. And I, as the hours wore on, I got the impression that Arthur was not enjoying her date much. In hindsight, it was a wee bit ludicrous dragging him to this show. Finally, to save the situation, I did what many, what I, I did what I'd done many times before and acted all into him and came on by curious. I asked him who that man was feeling up his butt at the restaurant. Arthur at first didn't remember I stuck my own hand into his back pocket to improve his memory. He blushed but kept flipping the albums in the import bin. Even chain stores like Sam Goody's, he'd always said, had sometimes hid treasures. One time in Berkeley, he'd found a case of the Velvet Underground's first album at a church bazaar sale. This was the record with the Warhol banana paint pasted on the front, ingeniously pink under a yellow peel. And these babies were mint, still in cellophane, cellophane wrappers, a case. And they were asking $20 for this case. <laughs> That's great. He had to borrow the money from a girlfriend, but it was worth it. For the proceeds of that fine saw him through a whole semester of careful eating and dining. Already it was a very rare record, at least with the banana unpeeled. In his pocket, my thumb and forefinger pinched his butt gently. Who was the guy, I repeated. He said the guy was called Steve, and he was a musician. So you're not gay, but you let him into your back pocket, and you just keep your hand there like it's renting a room. <laughs> he shrugged, grin, a grin that said, by curious, right back at me, like looking into a mirror. <laughs> I hypnotized him into going back downtown, back to the building where Alan lived on East 12th Street. Arthur lived in the building, too, though not perhaps in this very apartment. This was murky to me, unsettling, as though I were not wanted in his actual dwelling place where he lived. It was, well, you've all been in a situation where you're in somebody's apartment, and you, they say it's theirs, but they don't seem to know where anything is. <laughs> this was a Spartan flat with only a few pieces in it, all of them white, cream, and sand or putty colored. The floorboards were bare. 
though an area rug covered the lintel between two rooms. It was hot in that flat, and the window opened only a crack. You could see streaks of pink and yellow across the blue of the sky, and the noise, noise was fierce. It was what excited me about Manhattan, so different from San Francisco, where I had spent the previous summer, the summer Elvis died. In San Francisco, cars don't honk their horns. Arthur said it was the quality of the street noise that made different composers write as they did, the way John Cage wrote very differently when he worked in San Francisco than he did in New York and differently in Seattle than in the other cities. I thought he was projecting, speaking really of himself and the way he had written written this trajectory from the prairies of Willa Cather country or where whatever, which must show up in his music somewhere. I had vague misconceptions of Charles Ives. Then he'd gotten blissed out on San Francisco and now New York was drilling syncopation into his head as if it as it had Lorca and Stravinsky and Piet Mondrian. Like a boy, I was always reaching out manually, and for me, the direct approach worked. So I had been pawing him all the way from Broadway and Times Square, one palm flat on his crotch, where no one could see in what I hoped was a masterful, or at any rate, a practiced way. In this way, I had befriended Oh, wait, I'm on to another story. I'm going to skip all this part here. Inside Arthur's building, the bright room had a bed, but we didn't lie down on it. I was Tim Lawrence, the biographer of Arthur Russell, was interviewing me, and he was like, I know whose apartment that was. It was Gregory Corso's, <laughs> just from my description of him. So that's where we were. We didn't lie down on it. In fact, we didn't even get close to it. We just skinned down our pants and stood by the window, jerked each other off by the window, my back bumping against the painted wall. I blew him a little, cranked myself up, unsteady. His face was damp, rosy. In my hands, his cock seemed large, sturdier than I would have guessed, like a stick. I asked him if he was ready. He nodded. I asked if he had any lube. He shrugged. That made me think. That's what made me think. Maybe this wasn't his place. <laughs> but that was cool. The whole th- scene had something to it of the meeting between Brando and Maria Schneider in Bertolucci's <laughs> last tango in Paris. It made it more exciting than it was the flat of some than if it was the flat of somebody else. And later in life, I could see occasions myself where a trick pad, if that's what this was. <laughs> could come in handy. I reached around and and bounced his ass in my hand, sluicing his dick. Or maybe when I'd asked about the lube, he thought I'd wanted to fuck him. You could tell he was not going to go there. But he had a a great Ryan McGinley type of ass. It felt luminous and insolent in my hand. At that point, I was going to shoot and told him so. Aim for the floor, he whispered. You too, I said. I kept thinking, this is it? (laughs) I kept thinking, this is all I had wanted from Alan. But Alan had turned away from me, too busy for mere me. 38.8. And Judah said unto Onan, 
go into go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother thirty eight point nine and Onan knew that seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. You all know this great story from the Old Testament. Of course. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Tim Lawrence told me it was out in Gregory Corso's room. Who knew? It was so neat and spare. And Corso had that messy aura to him. But this place was perfect for this. It was perfect for the Amish sex we enjoyed. <laughs> squirt, squirt, figure X. <laughs> I just have one more little part to read. Are you up for anything else? <laughs> okay, well, we had another, went on another date, and, um, and another man had given me $140 for doing something very extravagant that you'll have to read about in this book. And I gave Arthur half of it, and he had enough money to pay his rent for a month. So it's temporarily in his favor. $70 possibly paid for a month's rent on his apartment. I don't know. I didn't mention my shame. I don't know if he would have been interested. His mind was made up about music was his thing. The only thing I remember knowing about music that he didn't know already was an anecdote about Cole Porter. Porter had been dissed by some competitor for writing complicated lyrics, and Porter retorted he could make a hit out of something as banal as, I love you. Stupid anecdote, possibly in apocryphal, but Arthur Russell, who knew the song, Porter's song, I love you, from the John Coltrane version, it said it just went to show how lyrics might as well and should be reduced to basic instinct. I asked Ginsburg to sign a copy of the radical gay arts magazine, Gay Sunshine, <coughs> that he had published some poems in. On the back of the issue was Ginsburg's poem, I Lay Love on My Knee, one of the little pieces he liked, liked to write in the vein of Blake or Blake, an American chicken hawk. <laughs> I showed him a manuscript. Across it he scrawled, Allen Ginsberg did not write this book. I hope somebody did. On the rose-colored back of the gay paper, he scrawled his name, Big Forward, ah. And nearby it, in the tiniest hand, Arthur Russell wrote his. That's my souvenir. I remembered our ropes of semen crossing on the floor of I don't know whose apartment. When I saw him on stage, his cello pressing his knees far apart, I anticipated he'd be an easy way. I didn't realize not till later on that he saw himself as basically straight, straight if weak and prone to stumbling. He hung out with fags, but walked apart, at least in the time I knew him. What he and I had wasn't very much, but it pushed a button in me. And always after that, I preferred to avoid thinking about him as one might dream of undoing a faux pas. I kept insisting to myself that pain of recollection denotes something. He wasn't the one that I wanted, but is that so horrible? That had, after all, been the dream, the theme of Greece, Olivia Newton-John, <laughs> striding in a hot-weather strapless catsuit 
turning the tables on John Travolta because he was the man she wanted. Um, and then we, we never did have sex again, but instead we went to the beach. And we went to Reese Park. Some of you know this beach because it's still, still going in New York. Uh, but then it was kind of like this horrible deserted wasteland and it was it kind of belonged to the gay people. And it had a, a clock with four faces and each one of them told a different time and none of them were the right time. <laughs> so it was kind of like, you know. I f- um, and then Arthur was just drawing in the sand, drawing these triangles. And I kept thinking about all the different triangles that between him and me we were all both involved in. I felt a little embarrassed by these triangle drawings, thinking that somehow Arthur was snidely referring to my feeling that I was part of a triangle with him and Alan Ginsberg. When I mentioned this, he said, we're not even really a line, you and me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Then what about me jerking you off, I'm thinking. And you have that little rich boy who waits on tables, Arthur said. I told him about Sean, of course, but I don't know. This is another story that you'll see in my book. Was I trying to make him jealous? Surely an impossible task. Arthur pointed to one triangle, the largest, and drew a plus sign in it. Let plus stand for Alan. Another one had an ampersand in it already. That can be me. No, that can be you. It just came over me, this feeling of hopelessness. I jumped down in the sand and drew myself as a triangle and put a minus sign in it. No, that can be me, I said spitefully. About an hour later, we were on the ferry laughing. It was still bright and hot and crowded. I had forgotten about the stupid triangle spat until I heard Arthur humming a tuneless, repetitive melody. You know, he had a beautifully expressive voice. I think he could have gone on Broadway. He was like Frida and Agnetha combined with the notes he could reach. What are you singing? I giggled. Then I heard the words. It was like one of the hums in the house at Pooh Corner. Triangles in the sand, he sang. Plus an ampersand. Minus on demand. It had other words too, but mostly it was these repeated often enough that I caught the tune and in a if-you-can't-beat-them gesture, I joined him. Triangles in the sand, plus an ampersand, minus on demand. Well, in later life, like last year, I you know, went to the vaults where they have Arthur, all Arthur's work. I said, did you ever hear this song? I'll sing it for you. And the engineer said, no, we never heard that one. There's no record of that. So he's like, maybe I'm the only one who remembers it. So I'm going to stop here now because I I shouldn't have gone on so late. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.